evening. Our New Testament reading this evening comes from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of, Lord, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, by the power that you have, Open the eyes of our hearts. We pray you would bring us new life. We pray that you would not leave us the same because of who you are, your name, what you've done, your reputation. We've come in faith, all of us at different measures of faith, but you say that you can do a mountain with a mustard seed. We need that. Would you do it in Christ's name? Amen. We're studying what it means to be a caring community through what we call the one another's of Scripture, passages that talk about uh, one another, how we care for one another. And this week we're coming to bearing with one another. And by bear we mean enduring, enduring, supporting, tolerating one another. And the Bible tells us that there's different types of things that we bear. Uh, we might bear one another's grief. We might bear one another's injustice. We might have to bear with one another's suffering. We might have to bear, as we talked about last week, with the spiritually growing or weak, right? But the focus of the passage this week is bearing with criticism and complaint. And in some ways, it's an introduction to what our brother Andrew will preach on next week, forgive one another. And as it's July 4th, my mind was drifting to jobs where there's a lot of criticism. And I thought, well, the president, that's a pretty tough job, isn't it? Right? You get a lot of criticism if you're the president. I don't care what party you represent, when in history, and of course, uh, one of the uh, presidents that was famously known for enduring a lot of critique was Abraham Lincoln. In fact, one scholar says this, Abraham Lincoln was slandered, libeled, and hated perhaps more intensely than any other man to ever run for the nation's highest office. He was publicly called just about every name imaginable by the press of the day. Grotesque, a grotesque baboon, a third-rate country lawyer, a coarse, vulgar joker, a dictator, an ape, a buffoon, and others 
as his presidency went on, the criticism against him increased, didn't decrease. There was a case where um, Lincoln was being falsely accused, slandered, and someone on his staff actually had the evidence to counter it, to repudiate it, but he declined. And he said this, he said, I do the very best I know how, the very best I can, and I mean to keep doing so until the end. If the end brings me out all right, what is said against me won't amount to anything. If the end brings me out wrong, ten angels swearing I was right would make no difference. Now, I have to confess to you, uh, naturally, I am a defensive person. Um, I am quick to defend myself, quick to deflect, quick to blame. And I know what the Bible teaches. I know the Proverbs teach that it would be to my glory if I could overlook an offense. I'm not interested in that kind of glory. Or I know it says that I should be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to be angry. But my journey to growing a thick skin and a soft heart has been a slow one. And many times, a disheartening one, discouraging one. And this is why, maybe you can relate. I don't know if anybody else here can relate, but I'm guessing some can. And one of the reasons I love this passage in the Bible, and in general, how the Bible deals with our issues in ethics, is that I'm not left with a shame-based call to obedience, nor am I left with just the prospect of willpower to change myself, I'm given a new reason. I'm given a new resource. Maybe we can say, I'm given what I need for a new commitment and a new capability. And that's what I want to look at as we consider bearing one another. So, first of all, a commitment to bearing one another. Now, if you've ever watched professional weightlifters do the really heavy ones, uh, it, the way that they have to stabilize themselves, right? That's really important so that what you're bearing doesn't crash down on you. It's typically not focusing on a bunch of stuff, but focusing on like one thing. Maybe it's breathing or maybe it's just stabilizing their core. It helps me to simplify things. So when I think about all the different ways that we're to bear, there is something really at the center of it that we can zone in on. And that is... Bearing with one another means not re retaliating. At the heart of it, it means not retaliating. And uh, we saw this in the scripture last week. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Vengeance is mine. Never avenge yourselves. Or as the apostle Peter would say, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, and do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is a distinctive, always was, of the community of Jesus, the community of Christ. Now, uh, Andrew and myself and a bunch of our other pastors were at our annual meeting of this denomination called General Assembly this past week. And while we were there, there were some fabulous sermons preached. One by Pastor Russ Whitfield. If you haven't heard it, you need to hear it. Man! 
Uh, but another fine sermon was preached by Abe Cho, who just recently uh, stopped being pastor at Redeemer in New York. And in it, Abe was referring to something he learned from his mentor, Tim Keller. And, um, and it was this understanding that in the early church, there were five ways the church was distinctive. And maybe we could say six in light of what I said about money. But there were, well, that would go into the second one. Here are the five ways. First of all, it was, it was distinctive and it was diverse racially and ethnically. That was something that was very different. It was distinctive that way. It was distinctive in the way it cared for the poor and its mercy. It was distinctive in the way that it protected the unborn, going rescuing children that had been discarded. It was distinctive in its sexual ethic and this idea of covenant and one man and one woman or celibate lives. Now, it was also distinctive in the way that they were committed to not retaliate. And Abe, as he preached, said, when you kind of break it down in a simple way, and you look at the progressive side or the conservative side, the, the progressive liberal side tends to do the first two, right? The emphasis upon diversity and the emphasis upon the poor. The conservative side focuses on the unborn and sexual ethic, but in all honesty, both fail with the fifth. Retaliation, right? We don't have to look far. And we also don't have to look just at political parties, because we can look at our own lives. We can look at the church. You know, this idea that we just kind of lob things. And what, what's harder is, you know, you need less courage to lob these days, because you don't have to do it face to face. All right? You can just lob through a tweet. You can lob through a text. You can lob. Fill in the blank. Our reflex to retaliate is one of the irrefutable evidences of what the Bible calls indwelling sin. Our propensity to selfish evil. It's just, it's undeniable. It's so clear, right? And we haven't grown out of it. And the closer the world gets with all its diversity of practices, it doesn't get any easier. But there's some comfort there. We can take heart that the challenge isn't just ours because it was not unique. It isn't unique to our day. It was actually in existence in the first century church as well. I wish I would have added the few other verses right before what we had read because in it, Paul makes a reference to the composition of the church. And in it, he says this. Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Now, he's just making a reference to the folks that were in the church. Can you imagine how they had to bear with one another with those distinct cultures? I mean, you can only look to the New Testament, or we have looked at the New Testament. We could just focus on the way the Jew and Gentile had to bear with one another. I mean, all the clash of the cultural practices. But let's take a different one. Let's take the Scythian. Scythians were a slave class from tribes of the Northern Sea. And they were known in first century society as violent, uneducated, and uncultured. Greek comedies regularly would single them out for the way they spoke or their lack of behavior and manners. 
The historian Josephus said they're little better than wild beasts. Now imagine in a house church, which was smaller than this, them coming together for a meal and a high-educated Greek speaker and a Scythian at the same table. The snooty looks, or maybe the manners you had to endure. You ever sit aside from someone who's just like, what they're eating? You know, you're sort of like, yeah, I need to look somewhere else. I mean, there are lots of reasons that they had to be together and bear one another and endure with one another in everyday ways, just like you and I have to. Hey, do you ever feel bugged by people in the church? Thank you for that. Thank you for the affirmation. I thought it was just me. Um, you know, do you ever feel offended by the way, what they think, what they say, how they behave, their personality? Maybe it's the way they walk into your community group, the way they, you know, interrupt, or the way that, you know, you walk in the room. And just fill, fill in, I, I'm picking on extroverts there. There's some introvert annoyances too, right? We all have them. But why didn't they retaliate? Well, Peter says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the tree. Bearing, right? He bore our sins on the tree. When you read about the ministry of Jesus, no one was more criticized than Jesus throughout his entire life. A storm of criticism. His brothers and sisters criticized him. His own mama criticized him. His best friends and disciples criticized him. His hometown people criticized him. The religious leaders criticized him. And then when he was dying, the entire city came out and criticized him. He lived under constant and relentless criticism. And some of you know what that feels like. Because maybe you've grown up in a home where how you made your eggs, how you loaded the dishwasher, how you brushed your hair. It was just criticized. Or maybe you're working for a boss right now and it's just like constant criticism. The Lord can sympathize. God came and lived in the flesh. He can sympathize. He can empathize with you. As well as the temptations you and I face, I, I think I mentioned once before, before I came here, I started a ministry, a campus ministry up at Harvard University in Cambridge. And my first year or two, I was troubled by an individual who really was opposed to me doing the ministry. And sadly, it was someone in the church. The church ended up disciplining them. It was a minister, larger church. And at one point, in this criticism, and I think at one point, you know, I forget where it happened, how it happened, but I was talking to the senior pastor, who was a wonderful guy, and I'd been, you know, I just felt like, you're not doing enough. I'm having trouble in this ministry. My, you know, my life is hard. Why isn't the church doing more? And I, you know, I began to sort of do that, and he stopped and he looked at me and he said, Glenn, 
you must trust the providence of God. I've never forgotten that. I remember exactly where he said it. You must trust the providence of God. What he meant by that is you must trust the timing of God, the wisdom of God, the rule of God, the circumstance that God is at work. You must trust those things. As the passage I just read to you, trust in the one who judges justly. He had rightly diagnosed behind my anxiety and behind my anger and my frustration was ultimately distrust of God. And really, if you wanted to go a little bit further, it was complaint about the character of God. Now, That's a big deal in the Bible. Israel complained, and a whole, much, a whole lot of them were scattered in the desert. But I want you to listen to this um, passage from Jude. He was a brother of Jesus. Small little letter in the New Testament. And he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken. And you know what is first on the list? Grumbling. Would you expect that? I mean, you know, in my mind, it's like 10,000 angels coming, and the Lord will convey. There's a list I would put way before that. Assaults, prejudice, racism, abuse. I would put all these things, and this gets listed on the top of the list. Wakes me up, sobers me. And who of us could stand at that judgment? with the way that we've treated our neighbor or brothers and sisters in the church, right? The retaliation. But praise God, there was a first coming. <laughs> the first coming of Jesus, where we're told he came to bear our sins in his body on the cross. You know, the gospel is, the good news of the gospel is the Son of God comes, the first time he comes, he steps into your judgment. The just criticism of heaven for your sin and my sin goes on him. And so, we find ourselves righteous before God. Our consciences are quiet. We find our sins have been cast, as we heard earlier, from the, as far as east is from the west. That ought to be encouragement to those of us that tend to be critical. Because my guess is, if you're a critical person, you also feel the weight of that guilt. And you probably beat yourself up, and you probably feel like, I want to encourage you that new beginning. New beginning whenever you need a new beginning. He not only heals us of the unjust criticisms against us and the wounds we've suffered, he heals us of our sin. Which gets me to the second point, and more briefly, that sets us up for the capability. So you remember what I said, I'm so grateful that I'm not just left with willpower, 
And so, you know, number one, we're trying to get a clear idea, what is at the heart of all this sort of like problem with bearing, with criticism bearing with one another? It's, it's an impulse to retaliate. And in that, I see Jesus coming forward and stepping into it, not retaliating against me, but suffering. But one of the things that I love about the Bible is how practical it is when it comes to grace. Grace isn't just there for your failures. It's there for your empowerment, for your progress. And you see it in what proceeds. What comes before bear one another? I don't know if you have the passage before you. If it's printed, it's probably gone now, but that's okay. I'll read it. Before it says bear with one another, this is what comes. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Before we're called to bear with one another, we're called to reckon with the position that we have. Now, those of you that have seen the movie Emma, there's been a couple versions, or you've read the book Emma, you know, Emma is a, a young, high-spirited, somewhat spoiled, you know, anyway, um, character. And uh, there's a scene where uh, she and some of her companions are on a picnic. And a woman named Miss Bates is on the picnic. And Miss Bates, she's older, she's unmarried, she lives with her aging mother, she doesn't really have much money, she tends to talk too much, and you know... So they get into this sort of discussion, this game, and Emma mocks and belittles her in what she thinks is a very dry, undetectable statement. But it's not. You know, there's this awkward silence, and then this woman begins to kind of stammer and stumble, and she's just like exposed and laid out. And uh, Mr. Knightley, Emma's older friend, I don't want to ruin the ending. He comes to her, and those of you who have seen it, this is one of the climaxes you know, of it. He says, how could you be so insolent in your wit to a woman of her character, age, and situation? Emma then sort of brushes it off and said, she didn't, she didn't understand me anyway. I assure you she did. She felt your full meaning. She has talked of it since. She is poor. She has sunk from the comfort she was born to, and if she lives to an old age, most probably sink more. Her situation should secure your compassion. So what he was saying was this. In light of your position, in light of your position, it should have actually produced in you compassion if you were aware of it you'd really take into account the privileges that you've had, what you've been given. And that's where the Apostle Paul starts with you and I. Before he gets to be compassionate and patient, all the things that you and I need to do to try to bear with people, he starts with the position God has given us. Now, when someone unjustly critiques you or complains against you, how does it make you feel? What are some of the feelings we have when someone unjustly critiques us, wrongfully complains against us? Speak up, Presbyterians. Anger. Anger. 
outrage. What's that? I'm sorry? Resentment? Is that it? Defensiveness. Thank you, Jordana. You have to help me a little bit. Um, yeah, condemnation, right? I mean, there's all the anger stuff, but it, we probably wouldn't be angry if we didn't feel to a degree. I, I feel condemned. I feel false guilt. You might feel shame. In that moment, you feel like you're kind of being pushed off, isolated, marginalized, set out to be, you know, canceled. You're over here. Now, how are you not going to retaliate in that situation? I think we get the answer here. Well, if I'm able to really think and regard that I'm chosen, holy, and dearly loved by God, those things become the great counter. When I think to myself, the Lord says to me in the midst of that stuff, when I hear that stuff, I've called you by name, you're precious and honored in my sight, you are mine, I crown you with steadfast love. I knew you before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless in my sight. I predestined you in love that you would be a son or daughter of mine. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from my love. The position that you get when you get into relationship with God through Jesus. Those things then give us a confidence to hang in there and bear, to bear the shots. But, you know, it, it's got to actually sort of get in us, doesn't it? I mean, it has to get deep enough. If our reflex and our impulse in that moment is, you critique me like mine is, hair trigger, there has to be something deeper so the reflex changes. Which means, I, you know, I have to actually get this voice in my head instead of their voice in my head. Because when I'm getting the voice of the devil, the accuser in my head, I'm, I'm going to retaliate. And so what I do is I pour over these words and I pray that the Holy Spirit embeds them deeply in my heart. There are times where if I know I'm going into a situation, and I think I've shared this before, and I realize, you know, I, I don't know how this thing's going to go. Maybe I'm going to be rightly critiqued for something. Maybe I'm going to be wrongly critiqued. But I, I, in my mind, dress myself with the armor of God. Ephesians. You know, the breastplate of righteousness that God, by his grace, has said, yeah, you're, you know, you're this bad and you're a lot worse, but I receive you. I've made you righteous. The shield of faith. You know, in psychology, they talk about transference and differentiation. Transference is when people, you know, basically, you know, redirect their feelings, in this case negative, anger, resentment, they redirect them toward you. And if you're going to be at all in the people caring business, if we're all going to be in the one anothering business, that's going to happen. But then there's this thing, differentiation, and it's a big concept, but it's, do, we, do, do you have the ability at that point to step away and not take it personally? Do you have the ability to say, no, this is who I am? And it might sound from the outside like this is some sort of way to be self-righteous, so you can't say anything to me, right? I'm righteous in Christ. 
You can't say anything to me. That's not it. If, that's, if that's, actually that's the way you go, you've missed the idea of the gospel because what actually the righteousness of Christ and the grace of God will do, it makes you more able to accept criticism. But it just helps you not to take it personally. And so, in the end, it delivers you not only from retaliation, but enables you positively to move with someone and sit there and bear it. Now, I want to be clear here. We are not talking about vulnerable victims bearing abusers here, okay? That's, the scripture has different places to talk about that, that injustice. What we're talking about is brother-sister relationships, relationships with my neighbor, because this is the ministry of Jesus. I, I, I hate to say it. I, you know, I, I realize it, it's kind of depressing, but it's liberating. You know how much of our ministry to one another and other people is actually just bearing people's stuff? Like sitting there and having the capacity to, to not fire back. It is. It's what Jesus did. We were told, right? He didn't open his mouth when the world was coming at him. So, um, in closing, uh, Lincoln once said, I shall do nothing in malice what I deal with is too vast for malice dealing. What he was saying is, listen, I got too much of a calling before you. These issues are too big and too important for me to get petty and start to get into these little things about me. The perspective was bigger. You and I have to have that as well. We need to say, you know, the glory of God is so vast. What God has given to me in the gospel is so vast. His love is so vast. The grace he's given me is so vast. My position is so vast that, you know, I can bear this. I can take this. And it's only after we do that, I think, we have that ability or that moment to speak into someone, and we do it with, we speak the truth in love, right? I think it's only after you do that, you actually say something in a compassionate way and not like, I'm waiting, you know, I'm waiting, and bang, I jenga your whole world. We don't do that. So, let's pray God will help us to bear. We think, uh, Jesus, about you physically bearing the cross, and then we think about uh, when Simon was pulled in. to bear it part of the way, and you, um, you have called us into this privileged position where uh, you have borne everything for us, but you do call us to pick it up as a ministry of yours. And so we pray that as our community, we could be known as one that doesn't retaliate, that it, whether it's with the culture or with one another. Give us, Lord, um, confidence in the position you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.